Amen. Well, good morning. How are you doing? Good. If you would, uh, grab your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 18. We're continuing in our series in the Gospel of John. And as you're turning there, uh, I want to introduce myself and, and kind of also introduce, uh, if you're new here, what you are walking into right now. My name's Jamin Roller. I am at Citizens Church, the lead pastor uh, over teaching. And we have been a campus of the Village Church and we are about, what is it, Adam, maybe 15 days away from officially becoming uh, Citizens Church, and so that's happening. And uh, we're excited about that. There's just been, if you think about the last two years of our story as a church, it's just been marked by change and, and transition. And I'll make the point this way, last Sunday marked one year in this building. And it's just like, in, in some ways, it feels like uh, we just got here, and in other ways, I think about being in the old building, I just don't even, almost don't even remember it, other than the roof leaks, right? Um, and so it's just, it's just been a, a very wild ride, uh, one way to say it, uh, but excited about where God has us, and especially excited that even amongst all the change, I was thinking about this, and thinking about when August 1st gets here, and we're officially Citizens Church, and uh, going into that, just knowing that there's going to be a lot more that stays the same than that changes, and that's as it should be, because we run uh, our plays, and we take our cues from a God who never changes, and so uh, we will continue in the book of John. And we'll be in the book of John until we finish it, and that'll carry us even through to when we are officially Citizens Church. And so, with that said, chapter 18, starting in verse 1, I'm going to read through 1 through 11 and then um, talk about where we're going this morning. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, listen to this, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you've given me. I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Early on, early on in the book of John, Jesus has had his eyes set on this moment. Uh, John chapter 3 is Jesus' first mention of his death. And so in so many ways, everything that John has been doing has been building to this moment. The last several weeks, we've been in uh, the conversation Jesus has with his disciples. This is the last day of Jesus' life, and he's spending the last hours he has uh, with his disciples, teaching them how to live in the world even when he's gone. And even that has been looking forward and preparing them for this reality that Jesus is going to, he's going to die and he's been saying that for, for so long. And so now this is the climax, if you will. These, this is, we are entering into the scene that Jesus' life has been building towards. And so it's his arrest, and then followed by that, his trial and his crucifixion and his resurrection. And we're entering into really familiar 
waters. These are parts of the Bible that a lot of people, even those who maybe even wouldn't consider themselves Christians, know and are familiar with. This is kind of, if you do the Easter pageant, this is a lot of where it begins, in the garden, with the arrest and the betrayal, and then from here on out, it's all very familiar. And so what I want us to pay really close attention to is as we walk this week and the next few weeks through what is really familiar I want us to pay really close attention to how this story is rooted in the story of the Bible. So what John is going to do throughout, starting here in 18, is he's going to highlight that Jesus is in complete control. It's why I read it slow. Jesus, knowing all that's going to happen to him, he's in complete control of all of these events. He allows himself to be arrested. He is not, uh, no one is taking his life. He is giving his life. And all of this is Jesus, according to John, according to the rest of the New Testament, all of this is Jesus reigning It's him ruling as king in a way that restores the world and does not destroy the world. Now, if in that last piece I lost some of us, let me say this. All of this will only make sense. All of this will only make sense uh, if we see this not just as a well-known story in the Bible, but as the climax of the Bible, which is one grand story. We've been saying this around here for a really long time. The Bible, from beginning to end, it tells one story. Uh, Because I have kids, there are six movie soundtracks that I know by heart. They are cartoon soundtracks. I know them by heart, uh, and they've been playing in my home, the first one starting six years ago. And so they go like this, from oldest to to the most recent. Frozen, Lego Movie, uh, Trolls, Greatest Showman, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which was a really welcome change to the other soundtracks, by the way, (laughs) and then most recently, Lego Movie 2. And Lego Movie 2 uh, features a song on it called Catchy Song, which literally just sings, this song's going to get stuck inside you, this song's going to get stuck inside you, this song's going to get stuck inside your head, over and over and over again, as if parenting wasn't hard enough without that, right? (laughs) Uh, and now half the room will be singing that song in their head, as if paying attention to a sermon wasn't hard enough. Uh, How it typically works for our family is that we will watch the movie, and then immediately after the movie is over, our kids say, can we listen to the songs? We want to listen to the songs. And so we'll go to Apple Music, and we'll play the uh, the movie soundtrack in our living room. Uh, And so usually uh, the songs are the highlights in the movie, right? The the songs are the catchy parts, the exciting parts, uh, but the songs, they don't just sing a song. It's not like a standalone from the movie. If you watch these musicals, these cartoons, the songs actually move the story forward. And so when we listen to these songs in our home, often what will happen is uh, one of my kids will pause the song or in the middle of the song, they'll start telling the story. This is what Elsa was doing before she started singing, and this is what's going on now, and this is what's going to happen after. And that's as it should be because the songs aren't, um, they're not separated from the story. They move the story along. They're part of the story. In fact, they only make sense. Uh, They only make sense in the context of the overall movie. So uh, my family watched The Greatest Showman while I was out of town. And when I came home, I came home to them listening to a soundtrack to a movie that I had not seen. And I was really confused. At first, I was like, Hugh Jackman sings? That's not fair, right? That's frustrating. Uh, And then, as I hear the songs, I was just really lost in it. And so what I started doing was without 
the movie, I just made assumptions about what I thought the movie was about based on what the songs were saying. And then I actually watched the movie and everything kind of fell into place and it all made sense. I say all that to say this, here's my point. Many people, many people read their Bibles in such a way that they listen to the soundtrack and never watch the movie. Meaning, there are parts of the Bible that are highlights. They're the catchy songs. They're the parts that are really well known. They're the parts that are maybe more uh, inspirational, if you will. And and so uh, uh, many people only camp out on those. They only camp out on the tracks. So I know a little bit about the creation story, but mainly just because the way that's debated in culture. I know Noah's Ark. That's a good kid's story, except for the part where everyone dies. And then um, uh, David and Goliath is this nice little pick-me-up when I'm overwhelmed by the giants in my life. And then I'm familiar with some of Jesus's life. I'm familiar with maybe the Lord's Prayer because we prayed it before the football games. And I'm familiar with the fact that he died and he rose again because that's Easter and we take pictures and there are good moral truths like love people and don't steal and don't cheat on your spouse and that's all good. And hear me, to just know the songs is helpful. It is. I'm not diminishing that. I'm not taking shots at that. It doesn't mean it's not helpful, but if often, so often it leads to such misunderstanding and then even beyond that, you don't actually appreciate the climaxes of the story the way that God intended us to. Look, Maybe you could put it like this, the prevailing thought about the Bible is this, that it's a religious book that is part moral encyclopedia, part collection of moral stories, and I make this book fit into the story of my life. No, no, that, that is taking the songs, never watching the movie, and then offering my own backstory behind what I think the songs mean and what I think the songs are saying. And look, what we sit around here for some time is that the Bible is one grand narrative, It is one story, and the author of that story, God, not only invites you to find yourself in that story, but to participate in it. If we don't see it as one story, what we end up doing, and this helps us make sense of a lot of what's going on in the culture around us, what we end up doing is we end up taking pieces of the Christian story, and then we merge those with other stories. So for instance, if I take the story of hyper-individualism, which just kind of rules the day, and then I take a Bible verse that says, don't judge, and I merge those together, I get this belief system that says, I believe in a God that I've fashioned after myself, and I am accountable to no one for those beliefs, and I'm accountable to no one for how I live my life. If you think about the prosperity gospel, have enough faith and you'll get healed. Have enough faith and you'll get the promotion. Do right, believe right, and God will make you rich. What is that? That's a blend of different stories. That's parts of the Christian story, mainly a ton of verses taken out of context, merged with the story of consumerism and the story of the American dream and just ignores the fact that the majority of Jesus' followers in the Bible and throughout world history have been poor and ignores the fact that when Jesus' disciples argued with one another about who would be the greatest, Jesus says, if they persecute me, they'll persecute you. So there's a lot at stake in understanding the Bible as one grand narrative. Seeing it as a story protects us from missing the meaning of the story, and especially, this is important for where we're going, protects us from missing the meaning of the songs when we get to them. I say that because of this. We are in one of the parts of the Bible that's familiar to a lot of us. It's familiar. It's one of the songs. It's familiar. It's, it's, uh, it's catchy, if you will. It's climactic, and it's exciting, and it would be easy to read through all of this. Jesus is betrayed. He's arrested. Then he's on trial. Then he dies, and he rises again, and he does all of that so that he can forgive me of my sins, and I can go on about my life. And there's some truth to that. It's not all wrong, but it's just not the whole story. So hear me. What it means to read these verses 
and what it means to walk through the next few chapters over the next few weeks as the climax of one grand story is for us to take the time to see in these verses how they're all connected together, to see in these verses how they connect back to what's already happened in the story. So we could read 1 through 11 and say, this looks like the story of a man who gets arrested at night. His disciples try to fight for him, and he tells them to stop, and he goes away with the soldiers. But if we see this as the beginning of the climax of one grand story, here's what we see. The world that was lost in a garden because of the power of a snake leading humanity to eat the fruit in self-preserving rebellion against God, that world begins to be restored in another garden because of the power of the lamb willing to drink the cup in self-sacrificial obedience to God. We see that story by paying attention to three things in these 11 verses. The garden, the name, and the cup. The garden, the name, and the cup that carries us into the climax of one great story. Look at me at one again, 18.1. When Jesus had spoken these words... He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a, what, garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. In the beginning, God creates... And God creates and he makes Adam and Eve and he puts Adam and Eve in the middle of a garden. And here's what he gives them. He gives them power. That's what the creation mandate is all about. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He gives them power to create. And so he uh, gives them rule over creation. And then he gives them power to choose, power to do what's right. He says there's a tree and there's fruit on it and don't eat it, and he forbids that. And so God sets up this world where he is the king, and then he puts Adam and Eve in his world to rule on his behalf. He gives them power, and they are intended to use that power to obey God and to spread throughout God's world, to enjoy God's world, to cultivate God's world. And then what happens is this. Another voice comes into the story, and he takes and he, he goes after the power that they've been given. And he says, would you use that power for self-preservation and for self-promotion? That's what the temptation is all about. Eat the fruit. If you don't eat it, you will miss out. What's he appeal to there? Preserve yourself. If you do eat it, you'll be like God. What does he appeal to? Promote yourself. And so in that moment, what happens is, as they eat the fruit, they come under the rule of Satan. A whole, uh, an opposing kingdom to God's world is born in the garden, and it is marked by those who use their power to self-preserve and self-promote. Hear me, this is so important to see. In the garden, it's not just that sin enters the world. It's that, it's that there is the beginning of a whole different way of using the power that God's given us. So often when we think of sin, we think of it just as doing something wrong, or we think of sin as breaking a rule, or we think of sin as committing something that we shouldn't have committed, and all of that is true, but underneath that, driving that is a nature, a default nature to use the power that we've been given, which we all have, and use the power in a way that preserves self and promotes self, rejects God, and hurts others. That is the way of the world. And that power exists in every single system, and that power exists in every single person and every single soul. 
So how does this play out after Genesis 3? Well, what's the very next scene in the Bible? Genesis 4, you have two brothers, Cain and Abel, and what happens? One brother, out of jealousy and anger, uses his power to try to preserve himself and to promote himself, and he murders his brother. He kills his brother. Why? Because uh, in his jealousy, his brother threatened his vision of life. By self-preservation, I don't mean the desire to survive or even the desire to protect yourself. I mean the commitment to my self-constructed idea of what my life should look like, and when anyone infringes upon that, I will try to preserve that, and I will promote myself over whatever their threat is. And that's what Cain does. That's why he kills his brother. Does that happen still? Did that stop in Genesis 4? No, because what is birthed in this garden spreads throughout God's world like a cancer that starts and just spreads like a disease over all the world. And so look, uh, even if you just think of the more subtle forms of violence that exist today, uh, Twitter has a problem, and they know it. And uh, they know that it is growing more and more toxic in the way that people interact on Twitter. And so the company has been working for over a year to come up with rules around what speech they will and will not allow on their platform. So they know there's a problem, and they've identified the problem in this way. They've said, our problem is that people use dehumanizing speech towards one another, and people use dehumanizing speech against one another. And so they've been working to come up with rules uh, around what speech they will and will not allow. And the reason why it's taken them so long is they can't come to a consensus on what is considered dehumanizing what's not. But that's not the point. Think about this. What an indictment against the culture. Twitter's in 30, 33 countries around the world, something like that. What an indictment against the world. Social media. <laughs> media designed to make us more social to help us interact. And because the power of the world corrupts that, what's happened is it now has to be monitored because it has largely become known as a place to see how angry and divided everyone is to the point where language is used every day that strips another person of their humanity and that happens on a regular enough basis that the company says we need some rules to try to prevent that. What is that? Well, if you consider what Jesus says in Matthew 5, you've heard that You've heard it said, don't murder. I tell you, if you are angry towards someone, you murder them in your heart. What that means then is we live in a world of canes sitting behind a screen and murdering Abel with their thumbs in 120 characters or less. Why? Because my self-constructed idea of what my life should look like feels attacked. And so I need to preserve that, and I need to promote myself by making the person across the screen less human than me. It exists in individuals. It exists in societies and systems. The very first collection of society you see in the Bible is in Genesis 11, after the fall in Genesis 3. And what do they do in Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel? Let us come together so that we're not scattered, and let us build a tower to make a name for ourselves. Self-preservation and self-promotion. Does that exist anywhere? Any self-promoting, uh, any idolatrous self-promotion happening around us right now, of course. And what I would say is what you see is you see it less as individuals working together to promote a self-promoting society, but more a society of individuals that are so committed to building their own towers and their own platforms that they do it at the expense of everyone around them. That didn't change. It's only grown the first political system, one of the first ones you see in the Bible is Egypt. And what happens at the beginning of Exodus? Pharaoh looks around and he says, oh no, 
there are more Jews than there are Egyptians. So we must oppress them and enslave them so that they don't overthrow us. What is that? We need to preserve ourselves. We need to promote ourselves over someone else. And it leads to persecution and slavery and genocide and infanticide. Has that happened in recent history? That self-preserving, self-promoting power that corrupts leaders and oppresses entire countries. It's Nazi Germany. That's South African apartheid, right? And you don't have to think too critically to see that around us right now. And it's also in us. If we could be honest, and not that this would be every single one of these, but if you just think about the negative emotions you've felt in the last month, anger, disappointment, outrage, fear, anxiety, and then if you were to ask questions about those emotions, how much of it would be tied to us trying to protect something or us feeling like something that we want has been threatened and we're not going to get where we want to get? Look, that, that was birthed in a garden. That use of power, of promoting self, preserving self, rejecting God, hurting others, was birthed in the garden and spreads all over the world. And so with that in mind, with that in mind, where is Jesus in this story? He's in a garden, verse 1. And he's where, where the world that God made was lost in a garden. What's happening here is Jesus is going to begin to win it back in a garden. That's not a coincidence, in fact, he dies, he's buried, he raises again, and where does he, what, where is the tomb that he walks out of? It's in another garden. It's one large story that God has written, and what he's about to confront in this garden, what descends upon him here, is the power of the world, driven by self-preservation, driven by self-promotion. It's descending on this one man in another garden. It is uh, Rome in all of its power. We're told that Judas got a band of soldiers, and he got a band of Roman soldiers. And at the time, Rome was the largest empire the world had ever seen, and it was marked by this sinful use of power, and it was full of just armies and violence. It was impenetrable, and their strength was in their armies. When it says band of soldiers, I think maybe 12 guys, maybe 20 guys, anytime that word is used in the history books, it means 600 to 1,000 Roman soldiers. Most scholars believe that it's at least two to 300 that come after Jesus. What is that? It's the power of the empire coming after two to 300 soldiers, shields, swords, torches coming for one man. Maybe they thought he had more followers than he did. Most likely they're coming to put this Jewish peasant in his place. Who else is there? It says that the officers from the chief priest, well, who's that? That's God's people. The people of God entrusted to lead God's people, who God from Abraham had taken a people to take them out of the world to give them his presence and commissioned them to be different and to be loyal to him. And those very people that represent that leadership have now joined with a pagan nation that they claim to despise, and they've joined that nation to come and kill God's son. Who else is there? One of his own. Judas, a disciple. Follow me. See this. The power that drives the world has descended on Jesus. This pagan army, this religious group, this former follower have united together to exercise the self-promoting, self-preserving power of the world against Jesus. It's a showdown in another garden. What's Jesus going to do? Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? 
they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. In your Bible, just as in mine, it actually reads, I am he. But in the original translation, what happens is Jesus steps forward in complete control, and he literally says, ego a me. In Greek, it means I am The he is added so that the sentence makes sense, but what Jesus actually says, what he actually gives them is I am, which is Yahweh. He steps forward and he says to them the name of God. If you've been with us for any time in this John series, what you know is John has been using these I am statements throughout his book and sprinkled throughout his book. He's been saying things about Jesus, uh, or Jesus has been saying things about himself. I'm the bread of life. I'm the gates, I'm the light of the world. And all of these are Jesus' revelation of God, how he came to be God. This statement here, this I am in another garden, is the culmination of all of those statements. It's the last I am statement in the book of John, and he offers it, and what does it do? It just stands alone. He doesn't say I am anything, he just says I am. What's going on? Well, This is one of those parts where the song needs the movie for it to make sense. In Exodus, God is sending Moses to go to Pharaoh to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt. Moses is freaking out, and he turns before he leaves and says, okay, who do I tell them is sending me? And what does God say? Tell them I am. That's my name. I'm the one who was and who is and who is to come. I am this uh, being upon whom everything else exists and everything else holds together. Tell Pharaoh that I am sent you. And so God is going to enter history and overthrow Egypt and rescue his people. And what does he lead out with? He leads out with his name. He leads out with who he is, Jesus is in the garden. The power of the world is descending on him. And he says, who are you looking for? And he steps forward to confront the power of sin and the power of the world. And he says this, I am. He once again offers the name of God. And then this is not, this is not an insignificant detail. This is a place where history hinges on this moment. What happens when he says his name? Everyone's floored. Everyone falls down. He says his name, and Judas, the Jewish officers, the Roman soldiers, and all of their power and all of their might, it says they drew back and fell to the ground. Imagine with me the scene. There are hundreds of men packed into this garden. This man in the dark says his name, and all of these soldiers and officers fall on their backs. Can you imagine the sound of their swords and their shields? Their torches fall on the ground. Can you imagine the noise that they make and how confused they are? What is happening? Look, you cannot stand. I cannot stand. They could not stand before a holy God, could not come in all of their self-preservation and self-promotion and rejection of God and stay on their feet. It's impossible. Look, you can use power to reject God, but you cannot. You have no power. I have no power to restrain him. 
He's the I am. And what's happening is if, if you were to watch the whole movie, you've seen this scene before in the movie. It's just not part of the song. It connects back to the whole story. Man has his own power, but God has his power, and they're not the same. They're very different. Since the garden, you can't stand in his presence. Anytime he comes, he comes in thunder, or he comes in a storm, or he comes in fire. It's why his presence has to be veiled in a tabernacle or in a temple. And anyone in the history of the story who ever got a glimpse is knocked off their feet or worse. I've been reading uh, the Chronicles of Narnia to my kids because I want them to be popular. And I uh, read it to my son. And now actually my wife is reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to my daughter. And I was reminded in, in there, there's a, a character, her name's Susan. She's one of the, the daughters. And she finds out that Aslan is a lion. And Aslan is the Christ figure in Lewis's story. And she finds out he's a lion and she's scared. And so she asks this question, is he safe? And the answer she gets back, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. And here Jesus gives us a glimpse into what it looks like when the power of God meets the power of the world. He's not safe. He's not safe. Who said anything about a safe God? Look. What happens in this moment, this is why I cannot stress enough how much of a hinge this is. Jesus wins, and he wins in a very specific way. In this moment, he has the power with a word to overcome the power of the world. Do you see it? John told us he was in the beginning, that all things are made through him. The mouth that spoke and worlds came into existence, he merely says his name, and the strength of the world is reduced to hundreds of confused men who have no idea how they ended up on their back. God, they are done. They're done. It's over. Like, look, if you've got a couple hundred guys with swords and shields and torches on one side, and then over here you've got a guy who can floor an army by introducing himself, that battle's over. If you're going to put your money somewhere, we all know where to put our money. And listen, hear me. This could have been it. This could have been it. This could have been what brought history to a close. Are you following me? Look, this could be the Jesus story. He simply comes and he teaches and he feeds people and he demands allegiance and everyone rejects him. Everyone, even his own, rejects him. And he could have responded to that in this moment by staring down the power of the world and all of its self-preservation and self-promotion. And he could have said, you know what? I can play that game and I can play it even better than you. He says his name all over again and everyone's floored and everyone's done. And everyone just goes away in a vapor. But, but he did not come to rule the world by destroying the world. He came to rule the world by restoring it. That's the story. And that's going to require a different kind of power. That's what we see in verse 7, in the cup, a garden, a name, and a cup. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This cup is part of the story. We don't get the part of the song without the whole story. In Psalms, in Isaiah, the wrath of God is described as a cup 
that will one day fill up. And it's a cup that God holds in his hands. And as all of the injustice builds and all the violence builds, that cup is going to fill to the brim, and one day God's just going to pour it out. Now, we are on a topic that is really, really unpopular. It's not popular to talk about the wrath of God or the judgment of God. It sounds unloving and it sounds harsh. I want us to think a little bit critically about this, though. Just consider how us as humans, how our sense of justice and how our sensitivity to things not being right is just inescapable, is it not? Look, uh, think about children. (laughs) Think about uh, the incredible sensitivity that kids have to injustice and rightness. Take two kids, give one of them four cookies, give the other one five cookies, and then watch what happens. Before long, hey, she got five, and I only got four. That's not right. And I'm like, I didn't even know you could count, right? You don't have to teach that. Where's that come from? There's just this intrinsic part of being human that understands rightness and justice. Most recently, just as an example, the U.S. women's soccer team won their fourth World Cup. They're incredible. They've been incredible for two decades. And they have a rally. It was either in France or New York. I get the details mixed up. But they are awarded their medals at this rally. And as they are getting their medals, instead of cheering for them, the crowd, thousands of people start chanting, equal pay, equal pay, equal pay. Because the men's soccer team makes significantly more than the women's. Now, I'm not trying to have that conversation up here. All I want to do is say this. What is that? The people that are in that crowd, it's a cry for justice. It's a cry for things to be made right. And that's everywhere. There is no, there is not, uh, there's not agreement on what it means for things to be made right. There's not agreement on what's wrong. But at least there's a shared sense that things are not as they should be. If that is true, all I want us to consider, if that is true for humans who are flawed and limited and imperfect, how much more true for a perfect, holy God who gave power to a world who turned and then used that power against him to reject him? Like, Why extend to ourselves the right to be outraged and yet believe if God is ever outraged, then he must not be worth believing in? Fleming Rutledge, she's a theologian and a author, and she wrote this. If we are resistant to the idea of the wrath of God, we might pause to reflect the next time we are outraged by something about property values being threatened or our children's educational opportunities being limited or are tax breaks being eliminated? I would add, just as an aside, the next time we're stuck in traffic, the next time the restaurant gets our order wrong, the next time someone gets credit for something we felt like we did, the next time the flight is delayed, or the next time someone expresses a political view that's opposite of ours. All of us are capable of anger, she says, about something. God's anger, however, is pure. It does not have the maintenance of privilege as its object, but goes out on behalf of those who have no privileges. The wrath of God is not an emotion that flares from time to time as though God had temper tantrums. It is a way of describing his absolute enmity against all wrong and his coming to set matters right. That's God. If it exists in us, how much more true for God, but not like us, it's pure. It's unadulterated by the whims of emotion, and it is fixed, and it is set. And when the Old Testament's describing what that's going to look like, they say, you know what it is? It's a cup. And every act of perversion and adultery and idolatry, it fills and it fills and it fills, and it's going to reach the brim. And if that cup of rightness is poured out by God on the world, everyone's knocked off their feet. 
He opens his mouth and everyone's floored, everyone overpowered, everyone drowned. And that's what it looks like in this moment, does it not? Jesus speaks and everyone falls. Peter tries to fight. Why? Not because he's some hot-headed fool. He just saw Jesus overpower everyone. He thinks that's the plan. Everyone falls down and so he grabs his sword. He's ready to fight with the power of Jesus. And Jesus turns to him and says, no, 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 no. I, I will drink the cup. I'll drink the cup. Listen, Jesus could have come. He had every right to reveal himself as God and to use his power to destroy the world. But he did not come to rule the world in a way that destroys it. He came to rule the world in a way that restores, which means, which means, if you've missed everything else, don't miss this, which means using his power, not in a way that preserves self or promotes self, that rejects God and hurts others, but, and this is where history hinges, this is where it all turns, but using his power as self-sacrifice that obeys God and heals the world. He says, I will drink the cup, I will absorb it, and through my self-sacrifice, I will rule, and through me, the world will be made right. So that turn that we just saw, that turn from Jesus roaring his name, I am, to take me and let them go. John sees that in Revelation chapter 5. He gets this vision of history, and he's weeping because there's no hope for the world. And someone comes up to him and says, John, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John turns to look for the lion, and what does he see? A lamb standing as though it had been slain. Not sure if you've spent a whole lot of time around lions and lambs, but they're very different. Lion is marked by strength and a lamb marked by weakness. A lion is terrifying. A lamb is vulnerable. And what we see here in the garden, what we just saw in a garden, is the lion gave way to the lamb. The power of the lion, it was restrained and the power of the lamb leads out. When he speaks, he roars the I am. And immediately after that, he steps forward as a lamb led, silent before the slaughter. And he says, take me and let them go. They put him in chains. They take the lamb away. And over the next few hours, the lamb drinks the cup that we deserve. Why? Why? If it's the lion who conquers, then none of us are left standing. And the world is just destroyed on our backs before the I am. But the lamb rules by taking the fall so that we might stand before a holy God. That's the story. He rules. He uses his power for self-sacrifice. He drinks the cup to restore the world so that at the mention of his name, right? At the mention of his name, we're not knocked on our back. But Philippians says this, at the mention of his name, every knee bows and every tongue confesses. If it's the lion, then we are conquered. But when the lamb rules, we surrender. We bow the knee to the power of the lamb who used his power to drink the cup that we deserve and sacrifice himself. Christian, Christian. Of all the ways we've used our power against God, Jesus uses his power not to knock you back, but to pick you up, and he takes the fall. The story is this. What he says about his disciples, he says for you, take me and let them go. Take the lamb so that they can stand before a holy God. This is the beginning of the climax of the one story the Bible tells, and it goes like this. The world that was lost in the garden Because of the power of the snake, humanity eating the fruit and self-preserving rebellion against God, that world begins to be restored in another garden because of the power of the lamb, not the snake, who's willing to drink the cup in self-sacrificial obedience to God. I am eager over the next three weeks to see that story unfold together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. 
We thank you. I don't, I don't know of a better way to say it, God. What would we do without you? What would we do without you? And to, and to get just a small picture of what future would have looked like if all you did was roared in your power, if all you did was conquer, and yet to see in your love for us, to see you take the turn, to see you lead and rule as the lamb who uses your power as self-sacrifice so that we might be restored by you. Thank you, God. Praise your name, O oh Jesus. We love you. Amen.